Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, this is Dr. Vesna Pachanik-Rosich for Dialogues in Dermatology. Welcome to our special quarterly issue with the JAD International founding editor, Dr. Cantor, discussing some of the articles featured for this March 2023 issue. Dr. Jonathan Cantor is an adjunct assistant professor of dermatology at the Pullman School of Medicine and editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology International. Dr. Cantor, welcome. It is a pleasure to speak with you again. Thanks so much, and I'm thrilled to be here again. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited. When I received the table of contents for the March issue of Chad International, I was really impressed by the variety of editorials, original articles, and research letters in it. For our conversation today, I chose three articles that kind of hit the spot, so to speak, in various ways, and I hope that you can help me highlight them for our listeners. So the first one is by Dizon et al. from the Veterans Affairs Palo Alto Healthcare System on clinical outcomes of squamous cell carcinomas following complete saucerization with negative margins, a retrospective case series from 2010 to 2022. And I thought as the incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer continues to increase, we should commend the authors for attempting to find ways to alleviate the surgical burden on patients and mitigate healthcare costs in the face of the ever-increasing burden to the system as well. They talk about intentional complete biopsy. Can you give me your take on what that is and how we can perhaps standardize this approach on treating patients? Yes, it's an interesting phenomenon because it's very, I think, important to highlight the differences between what the authors are describing uh, in terms of their practice with this saucerization approach and what people typically will do with the biopsy. So from what I understand, the authors are referring really to what many of us would think of as a shave removal rather than a typical small shave biopsy. So you know what they're essentially what the authors are saying is, and they've done work on BCCs before in a similar vein, is that there may be a place for select patients to consider rather than going to destructive techniques, rather than going to surgery, that for select patients with small squamous cells in low-risk areas, that it may be reasonable to do this shave saucerization slash removal with excisional intent. And the argument there is that really what this represents is a uh, what we would typically do as a saucerization and shave removal. So, uh, you know, you're not talking about a tiny little biopsy, you're talking about aiming to have, uh, you know, the authors talked about one to two millimeter margins around the tumor clinically, and to go and using a typical biopsy shaving blade that we would use for a shave biopsy, to make sure that you go wide enough and deep enough to remove the entire squamous cell carcinoma. So I think that is a great point to raise, which is that this is not saying that a simple small biopsy is going to be curative, but rather that an intentional wide and deep saucerization potentially has a role. Yes, and I encountered this frequently in practice because I'm a dermatopathologist. Clinicians will often request margins on biopsies, which I'm very reluctant to comment on when it is a typical shave biopsy. So I think it's very important to underscore that if you're submitting a saucerization with the intent of a complete removal, to specify that on the requisition for the laboratory, because those specimens are processed differently. And if they're processed as an excision, 
complete removal, they will actually have tips and margins on both the proximal and the lateral edges, which is important to be able to give a reasonably confident margin evaluation. So you mentioned that there was a study that they published on the recurrence of BCCs with the same approach, and that was about 3.4%. For this particular study, their recurrence rate was 6.4% in the general population, whereas it was 18.8% in solid organ transplant recipients. Can you comment on that, please? Yeah, first of all, I think it was very brave of them to try this approach with solid organ transplant recipients. Uh, I'm not sure I would have been that brave to try this, you know, simply because of the concerns that we always have, of course, regarding those tumors themselves being more aggressive and the recurrence rates being higher. So uh, one could argue that actually the fact that it worked over 80% of the time in solid organ transplant recipients, again, is pretty impressive. And again, keeping in mind, they were not doing this for patients who were, you know, sort of saying, I would like standard of care. This was really for a group at the VA who were you know, particularly reluctant to go for the full aggressive um, surgical approach that we would typically use. So I think that's important to clarify. The other thing I would just like to underscore your point about the close contact with dermatopathology here. If anybody is going to try this for that select group of patients, and again, we're talking about small squamous cell carcinomas, well-differentiated tumors, clinically distinct margins, low-risk areas, and patients who really say, I do not want standard of care, because of course, this is not standard of care, uh, it's critical to have close contact with your dermatopathologist. The authors did this by having dermatology slash dermatopathology review on every case. They process tip sections on every case. So this is not simply taking vertical sectioning. This is being very aggressive uh, with that uh, saucerization uh, biopsy from a pathology standpoint. So I think that's really important to underscore. It's not something that one should just send into a general reference lab and expect a margin comment that's going to be uh, reasonable and useful because we've also all seen papers regarding concerns on margin status based on vertical sectioning and biopsy. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. The other thing I would say is that the authors had a wide swath of patients who were treated this way. Again, those solid organ transplant recipients fared more poorly. Uh, and of course, areas in H&M, the higher risk areas for recurrence, which we know clinically also had higher rates of recurrence. So it's, it's important to realize this is a niche approach for a niche group of patients and a niche set of anatomical locations. So I think that is just important to kind of keep in mind. The other thing that I would highlight is that this study only includes those who had negative margins at that initial saucerization. And that was actually only 43% of those patients who were treated this way. And what that means on a practical level is that more than half of the people who are going to have saucerization are still going to need additional surgical intervention or non-surgical intervention potentially later on. Uh, so again, this success rate regarding recurrence is only for that subset who were clear on that initial saucerization, and that subset is less than half of patients. So again, important if you're gonna try this on your patients to make sure they understand that there's a more than 50% chance that it's not gonna be curative anyway. Yes, thank you very much. I think it's really important to accent the points that you made about this not being the standard of care and that their findings suggest that this may be reasonable, but only for treatment of small squamous cell carcinomas on the trunk and extremities that are less than one centimeter in diameter and have no high-risk histologic 
features or patient characteristics, which is a bit of a paradox because being a solid organ transplant patient is, of course, very high risk. And I would not personally attempt this in this patient population. But if they're poor surgical candidates or wish to avoid wider excision, this may be a conversation to have with those select patients to try and reduce morbidity and cost associated with additional surgery. Excellent. Well, we can move on to our next paper, which is by Bellinato and Al from University of Verona, Italy. And this is about the association between short-term exposure to environmental air pollution and atopic dermatitis flares in patients treated with dupilumab. So this was a very good reminder for me that there are factors we may not always consider when we're evaluating our patients in practice. What Bellinato and Al did was they evaluated the magnitude of short and medium-term air pollution exposure on the topic dermatitis in an observational case crossover study of patients who were being treated with dupilumab. Can you share with me what you found interesting about this article? Yeah, I thought this was another fantastic article, not just because I get to talk about Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, but also because I think it is, as you say, Vesna, an important reminder of those sort of environmental factors here, literally environmental, but also secular trends, right, that are going on. And when we're looking at these large epidemiologic studies, and particularly, uh, you know, we publish quite a bit of this in JAD International, a lot of this is published in JAD as well, with these large database studies, it's sometimes difficult to tease out the effect of the environment and the effect of whatever was under study. So if we're studying a drug for example, and we're trying to figure out is that drug effective. The reason why we love uh, randomized controlled trials, for example, it's not because epidemiologists are fetishistic about the idea of having a true RCT. It's because there's so many other things that could potentially going on. And so when you do a large case series, it's very important to keep that in mind. And here, of course, you run into the issues that we always talk about, like generalizability, for example. Well, Again, when we think about environment and the effect that environment can have, it highlights why having a heterogeneous patient population can be so valuable. It highlights why, for example, when we do trials, we want people from so many different areas and so many different backgrounds, because not only are there genetic differences, which are important potentially, but there are actual environmental issues that are important. And by environment, of course, this study highlights that we're talking about actual environmental issues. So for example, PM 2.5, right? The particulate matter we know already has a profound impact on health. I mean, classically, this has been studied more in the general medical literature regarding things like lung health, for example, cardiovascular health in general. But I think in dermatology, there's an increasing appreciation. I've seen an increasing number of studies coming through, uh, which are really trying to look at those uh, correlations using big data, using environmental endpoints like we have here, for example, where um, one of the great things they do in Italy is they have these kind of regional areas where they're tracking the levels of pollutants. And so it's great because then you can actually look and say, hey, is this flare potentially associated with those pollutants? So I think it's very, very important. The other thing I would highlight from this paper, and the authors kind of make this point in an elegant way, is they talk a little bit about the parallels between what we all appreciate as a risk factor for many things, like cigarette smoking, for example, and environmental pollutants. And we know that cigarettes, for example, you've got reactive oxygen species, but you've got reactive nitrogen species, you've got aldehydes, you've got all sorts of stuff. And we know, of course, that that's going to affect transepidermal water loss, which of course is going to affect downstream your skin health, particularly in patients who are genetically susceptible, whether in general or because they've got atopic dermatitis and things like that. So I think it's very interesting 
to step back and think about those environmental impacts uh, because it also kind of pivots a little bit our role as dermatologists to think about, well, what do we need to do to help our patients? What awareness do we need to make sure that our patients have? Because one of the challenges up ahead, I think, is developing a better estimate of the magnitude of risk associated with things like increased levels of PM2.5 pollution. If we know, for example, that the relative risk is 1.1 of having atopic dermatitis flare with airborne pollutants, then you say, okay, listen, it's, it's a 10% increase. So it's, it's real, but it's not going to change the world. But if we have studies down the road and we say, oh my gosh, there's a threefold relative risk, well then holy cow, suddenly that changes what we need to do in terms of education for our patients, what we need to think about in terms of uh, our patients anticipating uh, those changes and perhaps anticipating uh, problems and potential flares down the road when they have skin disease. So I think it's a rich area. I'm very excited about all the research coming out in this area, and I know there's going to be a lot more coming out in the future. I agree. And I think this is a great article to highlight because our listeners will have an idea of new points that they can discuss with their patients when they're educating them about controlling their disease. And personally, I'm going to ask those who have frequent or unexpected flares to follow air pollution through their weather apps and to see if it perhaps correlates and in that way raise awareness and maybe even have downstream longer impact on how we deal with the change due to climate change or industrialization and so on. Excellent. So our final article is by Ubakata Ekal from Ibarra Hospital Dermatology in Japan. And they published on risk factors and drugs that trigger the onset of Stephen Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis in a population-based cohort study using the Shizuka Kokuho database. So they aim to identify the incidence risk factors and drugs that trigger the development of SJST and in the general population. And they came out with some very interesting conclusions. Please do comment on that. I think this was a, another really fascinating study. I think it highlighted also some methodological strengths and some methodological approaches, which I think are potentially very valuable and important. First of all, this was a large study. This study involved about 2 million individuals. So first of all, it's always very exciting when you have that because you know, listen, I've got a lot of data points. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that when you have these large studies, you also have to consider that there are potential downsides to that because there's so much data that you could potentially see spurious associations. But to me, I I think key findings in the study were a couple of things. One was looking at who their population was and those risk factors that they saw. And they talked about the risk factors, including increasing age, as well as the history of diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, and autoimmune disease. So number one, I think that's interesting in its own right. I do think, of course, that we have to temper that with the concerns regarding confounding, because do we know really whether, for example, it is systemic autoimmune disease uh, that is the risk factor or whether it is drugs used to treat systemic autoimmune disease that are the risk factor? So I think those are concerns that we have to raise. The second issue is that they talked about what the inciting drugs are. And they mentioned uh, checkpoint inhibitors, which of course we're seeing more and more in dermatology, uh, both from our own patients and patients coming in to see us because of skin complications. But they also talked about insulin and treatments for type 2 diabetes as potential triggers. And there again, I wonder whether what we are seeing, and the authors actually point this out in their limitations, whether what we are seeing is in fact a real association or whether what we are seeing is simply confounding because you have, of 
course, those patients who are have diabetes, if we've established that diabetes and increasing age are indeed risk factors for developing SJSTEN, then it's not surprising that the drugs used to treat those diseases would be risk factors. But again, that association itself does not imply causality. And so I think that is where future work in this area using large databases, where we can be a little bit more strict in terms of understanding whether what we're seeing is in fact causal, I think will be very helpful, particularly because clinicians need this type of data when we're managing these patients. So this isn't just sort of an academic interest issue. This is a, hey, I want to be able to tell my patients on checkpoint inhibitors, by the way, you've got an increase, you know, because the hazard ratios they included here were pretty high. So I need to know, is that real? Or is that just because maybe checkpoint inhibitor patients are on a lot of other meds that they may not be capturing? Or maybe the underlying cancers that are being treated are in fact the risk factors rather than the actual treatment for those cancers. So that is part of the challenge is really kind of teasing all those issues out and differentiating them. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see uh, future studies using this and other databases as we continue to sort of use big data and even bigger data to address these important questions. I wanted to point out that their database doesn't include over-the-counter drugs. So any results that they reached were just based off of prescription medications. And it also made me wonder, there are so many people now using these new diabetes drugs that are kind of becoming a fad thing for weight loss. And I would definitely urge all of our listeners to keep a keen eye out for whether these new medications will continue to be as safe as they currently are shown to be. I could not find any associations yet out published about that but it did occur to me because so many individuals are using them now. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, sharing your thoughts about these fascinating papers. I do urge our listeners to look at the entire issue, to sign up for the electronic table of contents. I always kind of get a little jolt of excitement when I get it in my email and look through all the studies. And there's always so much that I want to read through and it's a quick and easy way to do it. Dr. Cantor, thank you. And thank you from our listeners for sharing your insights. And I look forward to speaking with you again in a few months. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And again, thank you to all the listeners and all the enthusiasm about JAD International. It's uh, really been exciting. And again, I would reemphasize that I urge everyone to, uh, you can sign up for the electronic table of contents. The other nice thing is because JAD International is open access, if you are sometimes disorganized like me and don't have all the getting behind the paywall stuff set up, even though, of course, we all are Academy members, you can just go to JAD International online at any time and get any article because they're all available in front of the paywall. So it should be very, very easy to access. And if anyone has any feedback or concerns, of course, please reach out to me. Yes, please do. Thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.